All righty. We are going to do three, possibly three things this morning, depending on your guys' questions. First, as usual, we will uh, start with any leftover questions or thoughts from this morning's message. Then, um, I'll, I don't have a new handout in reference to the whole issue of sin and repentance. I have the sheet that we had, and I th- we got through it last week. I got some extra copies if anyone wants one. And any further questions? We got through it. There weren't a ton of questions at the end. I fear I may be beating a dead horse, so I don't want to do like you know the eighth week on sin and repentance and faith if you guys want to move on. If you do want to move on, I've got our next handout where we'll deal with the doctrine of election and predestination, so nothing controversial there. Um, so that said... Let's start with any holdover questions from this morning's message or from our study in Zechariah thus far. Yes, JP. Um, whenever that's tough. Each I'd want to go to each passage separately. Um, what becomes clear in Zechariah, certainly, is we're talking about a nation. Nations are named. Um, go, to, go to Zechariah 12, where we see the great national conversion of Israel. And uh, we did two weeks on the issue of Israel and the church. Um, but you go to these passages, and one of my things is, look, if these passages don't mean what they say, they really can be made to mean anything. Um, and I do mean anything. So look at, look at um, 12, starting verse 1. This is the second burden. We're in the first burden of the word of the Lord, and our schedule right now is we're going to finish chapters 9, 10, 11, and then we're going to do a, a series, and then we're going to come back into the second burden of the Lord, um, starting in chapter 12. So 12 starts the second of two massive oracles that comprise the last six chapters of the book. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. I mean, yeah, it sure looks to me like we're talking about a geopolitical city, not spiritual Jerusalem or whatever. Keep going, I think that becomes more clear. Um, we're talking about surrounding peoples. So, okay, if this is the church, who are the surrounding peoples? How do you lay siege to the church? Let's keep going. Um, on that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. Again, we're either talking about weapons of war and horses and riders or what exactly. Um, but for the sake of the house of Judah, now we've got another tribe, so what subsection of the church is the house of Judah? For the sake of the house of Judah, um, shall then the, no, for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And again, if you take it's talking about what it's talking about, it's pretty straightforward. If you say this is spiritual truth, it can mean anything. I mean, really, 
if you're clever enough, anything. Keep going. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy when they look at me on him whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning at Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself. I mean, we're talking about the tribes. Or the the tribe of Levi is the subset of the American Christians. And the, I mean, you can try it. Good luck. But yeah, we're talking about a reconstituted and up till verse 10, unbelieving Israel. Yes. What Paul talks about as my kinsmen according to the flesh. Ethnic Israel. Yes. We're talking about... I, I, people were grafted into Israel, like Rahab, so clearly foreigners can become part of Israel. I don't know how, whether that just means you live there or you've joined yourself with them, you want to be part of them. I don't know. Is that like a citizenship thing? Or is that like, like married into a Jewish family? I, mean, what? <laughs> I don't know. The, the question for the tape is how connected to Israel do you have to be for this account? You have to be part of, you have to be, when God looks at the nation of Israel, you have to be part of that nation that he sees. I don't know exactly how level of, how much association, how closely connected that is. All I know is he's talking to the nation. And I know that people like Rahab and people like Ruth get into the Messianic line, even though she's a Canaanite prostitute and a Moabite idolater. So, yeah, but, but yet when they destroyed Jericho, Rahab has to be outside of the camp because she isn't joined enough with Israel yet. I don't know when that line gets crossed. That's a great question. I have no answer for you, JP. Um, <laughs> anyone else want to take a swing at how close you have to be connected? I, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Any other questions from this morning or Zechariah? The, t- the ten tribes. Yeah, Shalmaneser. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, it's it's no, it's true. Sure. Yep. Right. No, no, there, there, there is. Part of the problem is they've lost their records. No, it, it's, it's, it's quite certain that even now there are remnants from all of the tribes. But what we don't have is any real certainty. God knows who's what tribe, but there's a lot of confusion amongst the Jewish people themselves about what tribes they come from. Um, the dis- difference between the two southern tribes is they get captured and taken into captivity, but they do come back, whereas the ten northern tribes don't come back. But the Samaritans were um, half Jews. They were, uh, the reason they're called Samaritans is because they set up an alternate place of worship in Samaria with the, with the golden bull um, that, that uh, Jeroboam sets up. You remember the story, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, is a total punk, and he speaks harshly to the people. You thought my dad was tough, my little 
finger is thicker than my father's loins. He disciplines you with thorns. I'll discipline you with scorpions. And the people say, to heck with you, and they split. And Jeroboam becomes king in the north. And then God goes to Jeroboam, and he says, look, if you'll honor me, I'll set up a kingdom and a dynasty. But Jeroboam gets nervous because according to the Mosaic law, three times a year, everyone had to go south into Jerusalem. And he was afraid over time the people's loyalty would drift back to the house of David, drift back to Judah. So he sets up an alternate site of worship in the north in Samaria. And they also further rejected later revelations, so they only held to the books of Moses as scripture. And so they're kind of these half-Jewish, syncretistic, mixed in with idolatry. And so the people, the reason, this is why the Jews of Jesus' day despised the Samaritans, because they read that story, and rather than concluding, well, we better be careful, they read that story and thought, man, those guys are schmucks. What a bunch of losers. I'll walk around Samaria before getting dust from down on my feet. You know, and that's why they were so despised. They're half Jewish, which is why when that woman has that conversation with Jesus at the well, where are we supposed to worship? Is our alternate site of worship legitimate? Jesus says, no, it's not. <laughs> um, that's not really the issue. Anyway, this is a wonderful little backstory on Israel's history. But, but yeah, so Shalmaneser the Assyrian comes in. And the way you can remember Shalmaneser, you just picture a husband watching a wife in labor. And they're offering the epidural, and he says, Shalmaneser. All right, that's just for free. Okay. Um, now, I heard that, though, in, in, in Word of Life, and I've never forgot it. The cornier those types of word association things are, the more you'll remember it. Um, so anyway, there's my joke. All right. Um, keeping Pastor Gary's legacy alive and well. Okay, any other, any other questions from Zechariah? All righty. Moving on now to, we would have studied the issue... Let's, let's review of where we've come and where we're going. We first looked at the issue of what is the gospel message, and we determined that it was the declaration of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins according to the scriptures, um, and that he is fully God, fully man. And then we asked the question, what does the gospel require of me? What must I do to be saved? And what we've been studying for our last three or four times is this notion of how to understand the fact that the Bible has many ways of speaking of what is required. Look to the Lord, love the truth, and be saved. But the predominant three ways the Bible speaks of what I must do in response is repentance, faith, and repentance and faith. And by faith, I mean believe, the subset, same Greek words, believe, faith. And so I've been trying to argue that rather than there being some conflict, what do we do here, that rightly understood, all saving faith will involve repentance, and rightly understood, all saving repentance will involve faith. That repentance looks at what you're turning from, faith looks at what you're turning to. So here I am, treasuring, loving, serving, worshiping myself and my sin, and I turn from that in repentance to loving, treasuring, and serving Christ in faith. And that, that's what I've argued. And last week on this yellow handout, does anyone not have it? I don't plan on going through this unless people have questions. Um, but if you need a copy, it's right here. Here's two copies, actually. You can, you can give one to a friend. Um, four reasons why I thought this was so. Um, I looked at the nature of sin, that sin causes us to love it, sin causes us to treasure it, and that we cannot be reconciled. There's no meaningful definition of reconciliation, like I talked about this morning. 
if I still don't recognize God as God, if I still challenge his right to rule, as long as I still say, you don't get to call the shots, I do. We're not reconciled. We're still at odds. We're only reconciled when both of us are willing to enter into the relationship we should have, which is he's God and I'm creature, right? So there's no meaningful way that I can see that a person can say they're reconciled if they're still striving against God and his rule, if their allegiance and their loyalty is on the other team. Um, point two is the nature of Christ. And, and this is the, what it means to say that Jesus is God is a very strange definition of God if you don't think Jesus needs to be obeyed. So if you say to somebody, do you think Jesus is God? Yeah, I do. Do you think you ought to obey him? Nah. I, I don't think you think he's God. Or you mean something very different by the word God than I do. Um, if we think that we ought to obey, if, if you do not think that we ought to obey Christ, then you really do not truly believe that he is God. And then we looked at the way that sin enslaves and how in John 3, what, peeps ca- causes, what keeps people from coming to Christ is they love their sin. Jesus talked about you will love the master you choose to serve. Um, you can choose sin or you can choose to serve God, but your, your master will grab your allegiance. You can't serve two. You'll love one and hate the other, which is exactly what John 3 says. Light has come into the world. Men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil things hates the light and doesn't come to it. If your ultimate allegiance, if your ultimate treasure is your sin, you will hate Christ. You will. You will not want to come to him. We cannot come savingly to Christ while we still treasure our sin. If we love the darkness, we'll hate Christ and his light. And then finally, correspondingly, if you love Christ, you will want to obey him. And according to 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be anathema, cursed. And according to John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if you don't love him, you're cursed. And if you love him, you will want to please and obey him. Um, what I'm trying, the reason why I'm trying to argue this is because I was headed straight to hell because I thought I could accept some truth, pray a prayer, ask Jesus into my heart, and it would have, but I could still love doing my own thing and just give myself wholly to it. And so I was a drunk profligate for many years of my life who could articulately express the gospel to you um, clearly. You know, the demons believe and tremble. They just hate God. But they know it's true. I mean, the demons probably in some respect have better theology than we do. You know, they've been around longer, they've seen God, they have a better vantage point to see what's going on. They just hate God. Um, and so that, that's my concern, is, just, is, is that in a good desire to want to see people come to faith, and in a good desire to want to give people assurance, that we be careful lest we weaken the gospel so that it becomes decisionalism. And I don't think that's a big deal here, but it's been a big deal in places where I've come from. And everything's the emphasis on making a decision right now, today. Decisions are great. People get saved when they make decisions. That's wonderful. But, you know, you, you go back. Here, here's, I guess, my issue is if, if our understanding of salvation and faith has, our understanding of salvation and faith has a problem if we can think that someone can make a decision, get saved, and then spend years and years and years away from the church, away from the body, in sin. The Bible is clear about the fruit trees bear and, and proving what you are as your character comes out. And, 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 and so I think people that do that, we should warn, we should be concerned about. And we're not going to warn them and care about them if we think, well, it's okay, they're just a carnal Christian. You know, I know they made a decision, so they're okay. We're not going to treat them with the urgency that we need to treat them with. 
um, of, oh dear, it looks like you may not know the Lord. I don't know, but you're awfully looking like a thorn tree to me. I mean, I don't, I'm not a botanist, but those kind of look like thorns, don't they? You know, and try to warn somebody. Um, th- that's my concern in this, is, is that. Um, not to try to be divisive or, or, or to uh, stir up controversy needlessly. So, any questions on this topic, or are we good and done here? And we can round to election and predestination. I'll spend as much time as you guys want, but it seemed like last week we're kind of winding out. Yes? Death, deathbed conversions. My father got saved in a hospital bed within two days of dying. He died of his pancreas was dissolved by a, a ulcer that the stomach acid leaked, and um, the stomach acid devoured the pancreas. And um, I think they called it pancreatic necreatitis, I think is the title. Um, but anyway, my dad was a, uh, a very faithful, nominal Roman Catholic. What I mean is he was very faithful to his version of nominal Catholicism. So he went to Mass every Sunday, but he didn't know all the stuff he was supposed to know. He didn't believe in the Immaculate Conception. He hadn't really heard it. So he had this sort of nerfed version of Catholicism that he was very, very faithful with. And he made a profession of faith two or three days before he died because I just got, I got, I, the Lord had saved me and had, had brought me into, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And my dad noticed the change in my life that happened. And we started reading our Bibles. And we were talking about John 3 and believe and being born again and all that stuff. And I remember him. And, and the thing is, he didn't know he was going to die. He went into the hospital thinking it was just a standard stomach ulcer operation. It's pretty standard. They cut off the ulcerated part. They sew it back up. They, and what's going to happen is they don't check to see if anything happened. They assumed it hadn't. And he's not going to get better. And then they're going to open him back up to see why he's not getting better. And he's going to be dead that night. So when they find out his pancreas had liquefied, that's the day he died. So this is the day before that when we're still waiting for him to get better, get out of the ICU. And so it wasn't, it wasn't like he was, knew he was dying, but he made a profession. Now, here's what I can say. I certainly believe my father, I believe my father is saved. He did not have much time to bear corroborating fruit, but you don't need fruit to be saved, you need fruit to demonstrate that you're saved. James says, show me your faith by what you do. So I guess in some sense, I don't have the same certainty I would have if my dad lived five more years and I saw the fruit of the Spirit growing fully in his life. But it's not like he bore thorns either. He just didn't bear much of anything because he died the next day. The thief on the cross um, made a profession of faith, bore a small amount of fruit. He did do some things. I mean, people forget he rebuked the other thief. He gave public testimony to Christ. I mean, he, he did some stuff. But certainly, you know, not what he would have done if he'd lived another 5, 10, 20 years. So, yeah. Yeah. They can be saved. Yeah, yeah, they can be saved. What's <laughs> what? Yes. Right. No, it's right now. Right. I would. I would call them. I would. I would talk. Well, if I had five minutes and I knew I'd. The problem is you don't know if you got five minutes or five seconds, right? Um, if if I if I had the time to say everything I'd want to say, I'd I'd want to lay the gospel out and tell them that all their life, they've been at odds with God all their life. They've been resisting the truth. They've been resisting his rule. They've been going their own way. Like a sheep, they've gone astray. And God is, is calling them that even now, if they will, if they will 
um, turn to him in faith, if they will renounce their rebellion, if they will say, yes, I will be your creature, you will be my God, please forgive me, I want to come back, that you can be received. Like the prodigal whose father meets him on the road with open arms. But the prodigal doesn't meet him in the pigsty. The prodigal's father meets him when his son turns. And the second he sees that, the father's out there running. He's not making him wait until he comes all the way back to the house. But I do think that's significant. It's not until the son says, I need to go and confess and basically repent. I was wrong. I'm not going to do what I was wrong anymore. I want to let me just live in your house as a servant. You know? So I, that, that's yours right now. If you, will, if you will turn to Christ in faith, you can be forgiven and you can have certainty that you're going to be and live with God. So absolutely. Um, there's a movie. It's kind of odd. Has anyone here ever seen the movie The Apostle with Robert Duvall? It's an interesting movie, but he plays a, a preacher of a slightly Pentecostal church. But he has a scene exactly like that. He sees a car crash on the side of the road, and he gets out, and he goes, and he witnesses to this guy who's paralyzed in the car while he's dying. And the police officer's trying to pull him away. He's like, you see him trying to witness and sort of kicking the guy. And, you know, it's, no, it's, it's, it's really, it's a really, I, I really like it um, as a movie. But certainly understand Robert Duvall's character is flawed, and you're supposed to understand he's flawed. If you want to see a movie where the Christian's a good guy, and, then you'll be confused. But if you want, think, want to see a very well-made movie that's real, The Apostle with, by Robert Duvall is worth watching. Um, you've definitely got to understand the movie presents Duvall as a flawed person. No, no questions about it. Um, but yeah, anyway, I'm, I'll let you borrow it if you want. I own it. But, but you know, it's exactly what happens. Exactly what happens. There's a couple of pretty powerful gospel scenes in the movie. Um, Sadly, I don't believe Robert Duvall's a Christian, but he grew up in that sort of Bible belt, and he wanted to make a movie doing homage to it, showing what it was like, and he pretty much nails it. Um, nails that sort of Southern Bible belt culture and what's going on. But anyway, enough advertisements for movies from me. Um, any other questions on this yellow sheet and what we've been talking about for four or five weeks? Going once, going twice. New handout. Can I get a volunteer for the new handout? Okay, can I get two volunteers? Wendell's coming. Wendell, are you sure you're not going to drop him? <laughs> Here you go, sir. And uh, JP and Wendell will be um, passing out our handouts. So the, the corner that we're rounding now is we've looked at the gospel as propositional truth. The gospel is a message that is declared. We've looked at the gospel from man's perspective. What must I do to be saved? However, the Bible also will speak of the gospel and salvation from God's perspective. And that's when we start having to address the questions like predestination and election. Now, you've got to understand, everybody or every church has a doctrine of election and predestination. The reason why they do is they're biblical words. <laughs> The debate is over what they mean. There really is nobody who doesn't believe in election. There's nobody who, who holds to the Bible who doesn't believe in election. They just redefine it. It's a biblical term that shows up repeatedly. So, again, this isn't an issue of being controversial for the sake of controversy. This is saying, okay, when the Bible talks about God's elect, what does it mean? When the Bible talks about God predestining, what does it mean? But those are biblical terms um, that everyone has to deal with. So we're not just trying to stir up the pot for the sake of stirring up the pot. We want to understand what the Bible teaches on these topics. Okay, any, that's my sort of opening remarks. Any questions going into that? Um, okay, I want to walk through the front of the page that says salvation from God's perspective. That's the side, page one, we're going to look at. And I just want to make a biblical argument that I think um, 
I think hopefully from what we've already taught and already covered in this class should make sense, shouldn't be too problematic. I, I do want to give one other caveat. Um, as much as I think the Bible is clear on this issue, as much as I think the, speakers, the scriptures speak repeatedly and clearly and even with great force on this topic, I recognize it's a tough topic. Even some of the most staunch and ardent defenders of predestination, guys like John Piper and R.C. Sproul, admit to months, and in Piper's case, a couple of years of wrestling with this, agonizing with this. So I do not expect that just because I walk through a one-sided sheet in 20 minutes, um, everyone's suddenly going to be like, ah, like work through it, keep working through it, great. The only thing I ask you not to do is stick your head in the sand and say, well, I'm not going to worry about this. There's a lot of ink in the Bible on this topic. The glory of God is in you struggling and wrestling through his word. Um, take your time with it. Don't, don't be easily persuaded by me. If, if I make my case biblically, that's one thing. But please feel free to work through this issue. Please feel free to take your time and not somehow feel like everyone better be on board by the end of this ABF. That would just be foolish of me um, to even think would happen. So here's the sheet. Let's walk through it. Point one. And, and this is recapping a lot of what I've said. If you've been following along in the last few weeks um, and months, I think this will make more sense because I've intentionally laid some foundation work in previous weeks. Natural man is unable to desire to submit to God's law or come to Christ. Now, if you remember, back in December, when we did the three weeks in Genesis, we did a fourth week on original sin and the depravity of man. And that is where I spent the entire hour making that one single point. So I'm not going to spend an hour now on it, but I will look at some verses. But I'd encourage you, you can go online. You can listen to Original Sin, The Depravity of Man. And what I'm arguing is that the Bible teaches that because of our sinfulness, we are left unable to want to obey God and unable to want to come to Christ. We don't have any good part of us within us that responds. Remember I was talking about this morning when you see the king rightly, the natural response is joy. There's no part of us that responds to God's law and God's Christ with joy. There's no, there's no goodness in us that goes, yes, I want that. Let's back this up with some text. John 6, 44, Jesus speaking, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him on the last day. Romans 8, 7 through 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, your mind, natural mind, apart from grace, fleshly mind, cannot submit to God's law, and it cannot please God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So there's three passages that clearly have limiting language, unable, cannot. Um, and, and here's where we got to ask, and leading to our next question, what makes this unable? And I want to be emphatic here. I do not believe... Um, People who hold to election and predestination, Calvinistic people, do not believe that there is an invisible wall stopping people. This is why I want to say this the way I say this. They can't want Christ. In other words, it is not the case, it is not the case that there are people who want salvation. There are people who want Jesus. There are people who want to come and they hit this invisible wall of glass. Sorry, you weren't invited. 
That is not the case. This is, this is unable, like I'm unable to enjoy rap music. There's nothing in me that responds to rap music. Is that a contradiction in terms? But there's nothing within me that responds to that with pleasure or desire. It's conceivable I could try to train myself to like it, but what I can't do is listen to it and say, yeah, authentically. Yes, Seb? It's ability. Right, right. There's, there's two ways you can be unable to do something. I want you to think of this. You can be unable to do something because you don't have within you the ability to do it. I, no matter how hard I flap my arms, I'm not going to take off, right? In that instance, I could want to do the thing, but lack the actual ability to do it. There's another way I can be unable to do something. I can be unable to do something because I... I I lack the desire. That's more like my inability to enjoy rap music. Or the example I used, Abby, were you there with the big jar of nasty stuff that Sunday night? Do you remember that? I had a big giant pickle jar with like rotten apples and stuff. Okay. And this was the example I used. I talked, gave this example in the sermon, but um, I had this big nasty pickle jar. And just about this time of year when there's still some snow on the ground, I went out and I got all the scrogglings off the tree and all the rotten apples. And I put some fair amount of dirt in for good measure and, and took some snow and some water. And you just had this big pickle jar, the big ones, the Costco pickle jars, just filled to the brim with just nastiness. And I shook it up. And, and I went to the ATM and I got five crisp $20 bills. And I sat the youth down on Sunday night and he passed the big pickle jar and I had a spoon with it and moved it around and the 520s went the other way. And before the thing had even finished, you know, passing around to listen, Matthew Braun, like, I'll eat that for a hundred dollars, you know. And, you know, let's face it, Matt would do it for five. But, but, um, but I said, that's not my challenge. My challenge, I, I know you can make yourself do that. What I want you to do is to enjoy eating it. I want you to use your free will to rearrange your desires, rearrange your palate, rearrange your affections. I want this to be your new favorite food. I want you to delight in eating this. And I had to explain that two or three times before it clicked, but what I'm trying to show you is, yes, there's a certain ability. You can make your hand come to your mouth with a spoon of nasty stuff in it. What you cannot do is delight in it. What you cannot do is love what you don't love. You can't believe what you don't believe. You can't hate what you don't hate. You can't desire what you don't desire. If we could, our fight with sin would be as simple as saying, I'm going to stop loving the praise of man. I mean, wouldn't that be wonderful if my fight with sin could simply be, you know what, I'm just not going to want people to praise me. I'm just not going to want my own way anymore. I'm not going to want to be served. Um, I'm just going to start wanting to be a servant and start wanting to humble myself and start wanting to, wouldn't it be simple? Isn't the whole problem with sin I can only fight the level of what I do. My heart wants what it wants. My desires desire what they desire. And I am unable to change them. I can try to resist them. I can try to stop them. But what I can't do is reach inside my heart and just you know, reach, do the wiring, and mm, there we go. That's the way the Bible presents man's inability. That's what makes him unable to come. In fact, R.C. Sproul further says, and Jonathan Edwards as well, it is precisely man's freedom that prevents him from coming. It's precisely the fact that man gets to do whatever he wants, that people who all they want is darkness because they love the darkness only do darkness. 
let me show you in John 3.19 what I mean. This is the judge. Okay, so next point, which is where we go to John 3.19. The reason for this is because man is fallen and as a result loves his sin and hates the righteousness of God that exposes his sinfulness. Because man is fallen and as a result hates, loves his sin and hates the righteousness of God that exposes his sinfulness. And this is the point in John 3. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Now get this. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. How many people do wicked things? Some? A lot? Everybody, right? So you could just say everybody, therefore, hates the light and does not come to it. Not because somebody outside of them is stopping them, not because of some external force being dominating by their will, but precisely because of what they love. Precisely because they love the darkness, they hate the light and don't come to it. Precisely because no one's interfering, precisely because they're being left alone to do what they want, they run from the light like cockroaches. You gotta get that. This is not saying that some external force is keeping them away. Rather, it's the nature of our sinfulness that when God says, choose whom you will serve, without grace, we always say, my sin, myself, always. Verse 20, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed, which is why Luther said the issue of the depravity of man, when he was debating with Erasmus, is the linchpin, the crucial point, alongside of which issues like the Pope, purgatory, indulgences, the veneration of saints is, quoting Luther, trifles. Because he understands this is the thing, that your understanding of is man dead in his sin or is he sick and dying is going to totally affect your understanding of the gospel and God's grace. Um, is man drowning and Jesus has thrown out a life, uh, a life raft and he's got just enough strength to take hold? Is that the state of man? Or is man eight fathoms down, dead as a doornail at the bottom of the sea and needs to be raised and born again and given new life? I think the Bible paints the second picture. Um, let's look at Jeremiah thirteen twenty three. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. It's again, you can't just reach inside your heart and stop loving what you love and start loving what you don't love. You're not free to do that. Romans 3.10, as it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. There's only one seeker, and it's God seeking men. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We're not looking for him. Whatever we say, we're not. Okay, any questions on those first two steps? Hopefully this is somewhat recovering ground we've covered. If you paid attention to our our discussion in the ABF on the depravity of man and sin, and if you paid attention to that message in December, then hopefully that this is not new stuff. But feel free to ask questions like that. That might be bad because now someone had a question they don't want to ask it because you'll think I didn't pay attention. Or I, I was confusing. We'll put the blame back possibly on me. Any questions? Yes. Okay. What do you say? Well, the implication is this. As soon, it's kind of like saying when pigs fly. You'll be able to do good the same day the Ethiopian can change his skin or the leopard can change his spots. Just as they are unable to change their skin pigment and just as the leopard is unable to change its fur patterning, so are you unable to do good. So he says, can, you, can they do this? 
Well, then so can you. He's saying it's in the same way. It's kind of like when we say, yeah, when hell freezes over. You know, um, it's that type of metaphor. Any other questions? Point three. So I want you to get this. The doctrine of election is not the doctrine that God is shutting people out. It's the doctrine that God is letting people in. But God, in his amazing love and mercy, chose, there's the blank, chose to make sure that some would, in fact, be saved. While God truly and freely calls all men to salvation. Let me pause. Jesus, in John 6, is equally emphatic. No one who comes to me gets turned away. No one who comes to Jesus gets, sorry, anyone who wants to come can. Anyone who comes to him will be embraced by him. God chooses, So while God truly and freely calls all men to salvation, ultimately it is only his elect, that's the biblical term, his elect, in whom he works, who will repent and believe. That's, that's what I think the Bible teaches. So it's not the doctrine of election is God shutting out. It's the doctrine that God says, I will, in fact, make sure these people get saved. Let me read some text, then we can discuss it. Acts 13, 48. And, and here's what I think you'll find. The Bible is completely unembarrassed of using some of the most ridiculously strong sovereignty language. I mean, imagine, no, no. Imagine if you asked me, if somebody asked you after church, hey, did anyone get saved at church today? If you answered it the way Luke writes it here. Well, look at this. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Did anyone get saved at that evangelistic rally you went to in Des Moines last week? As many as were appointed to eternal life did. I'm just, that's a pretty bold, unapologetic way of saying it. Frequently, Peter in his, and Paul in his letters will address the letters to the elect. You go to the, Paul's opening addresses and letters to those who are chosen of God at Philippi. I mean, imagine him said, morning, brother chosen of God, and to all you other chosen. I mean, we don't do that nowadays because we don't want people to think we're being jerks. <laughs> they were so comfortable with this teaching, they could honestly and genuinely refer to each other that way. Um, Acts 16, 14. Lydia her conversion, one who heard us was a worshiper named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Which is my whole point. God has to do a work in your heart. And I think there's a lot of biblical metaphors for this. Your heart of stone has to be replaced by a heart of flesh. You need eyes that see instead of eyes that don't see. The veil needs to be removed. You need new ears. Whatever biblical metaphor you want to use, or you must be born again, there has to be something that happens in your heart first to change your desires so that when you see Christ, you can want him. You can want to turn from your sin because you'll never do that naturally. So here God, in preparation, does a work in Lydia's heart that enables her to believe. Now her heart's affections are altered. He's opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And then some more clear statements. Romans 8, 29 to 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Um, many theologians refer to that as the golden chain. And I want to make a point. We look at foreknow, and some people at that point say, ah, 
God is looking down the corridor of time, and he is seeing who will choose him. First off, that's a really interesting way to redefine predestined. I'm going to predestine you to do what I see you doing. So you didn't really destine me at all. I kind of destined me. The second with that problem is God ends up learning something. Because you have God not knowing who's going to believe, then he sees who's going to believe. Now I know who to choose. Which I think is problematic, and I hope you find problematic as well. No, the notion of knowledge is much more relational. Adam knew his wife and she bore a son. For God to foreknow is really for God to forelate to, to forelove. knew you right depart from me i never knew you exactly so the the biblical usage of the term is much more relational knowledge those whom god beforehand loved beforehand knew in an intimate special way those he predestined that's what i understand he's saying and then ephesians 1 is probably some of the most ridiculous go to ephesians 1 because i just want to read the whole opening sentence it's about 18 verses long Paul writes some long sentences. And I'm going to intentionally put the emphasis on the words that relate to God and what he does. I want you to, as we read this, and you're going to see every aspect of our salvation looked at. You're going to see every member of the Trinity in operation in our salvation. And I'm going to submit to you that we are entirely acted upon in this sentence. We're looking at verses 3 to 14. We are passive. Things are done to us. Things are done for us. God is the active agent. All the members of the Trinity are active. All aspects of our salvation are covered. And you walk away from this thinking, Paul wants to make it clear, salvation is of the Lord. Again, using clear language like elect, predestined, things like that. So let me just read one sentence. Verses 3 through, in Greek it's one sentence, 3 to 14. And I will be emphasizing the he's and the hymns and God so you get the weight of just how he's the active one here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us before him, in, in him, sorry, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of 
his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I don't know how it gets any clearer than that. Everything, other than the, the oblique reference to them having believed in the past, which they did, you have to actually believe. No one else can do it for you. Aside from that, they are entirely the passive agents being acted upon in that, in that passage. Words like predestined, elect, are thrown around without any problem. Paul, in my own reading, is unapologetically saying, we were chosen, we were predestined, God had a plan. He lavished his grace upon us. He chose us. He, he's guarded us. He's preparing and guarding our inheritance for us. It won't corrupt. Um, any, any questions thus far on this? We haven't even got to Romans 9. Um, I know this is heavy. I know this is hard. All I'm trying to argue right now is I'm pretty sure the Bible pretty plainly teaches this. I know it's hard. I know we struggle with these things. So I'm not yet trying to deal with, next week we'll deal with all of the, yeah, but, you know, the, the, the but what's and the objections. I'm just trying to make a biblical argument for, it's pretty plainly there. It's not like hidden in one verse over here. It's like most of Ephesians 1, all of Romans 9. Um, it's there. We will in coming weeks try to make better sense of it. But flip over the page now. We'll just get started on the second side. Unless you have any questions at this point. Any questions? Because we've got three minutes. Yes? Um, I don't really doubt the doctrine yeah. of yeah. predestination. That's not it. But um, I guess I have a problem with this love of sin that sort of still predominant in my life. Mm. Um, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. Right. I more have like a word of life. Sure. Um, sure. Decisional moments, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and so I can't anymore pinpoint. So when was I elected? I mean, you have to be dead. Right, right, right. Well, let me, let me say a couple things. The Bible consistently speaks to those who are believing. I'm not aware of really any passage that speaks to those who believed. So the, the real issue in you say, am I a Christian, is not did I believe, but am I believing? That, that's the first thing. That was the, big, that was the big breakthrough for Serena. Serena used to question her salvation, and she wrote when the date she got saved. Are you in the room? Did, is she here? No. Okay, I can tell the story then. Okay. Um, <laughs> otherwise, she'd want to tell it. That's all. Otherwise, she'd want to tell it. That's all. And she'd go back, and you know, as a little kid, she'd be like, and, she'd, and finally, when she was... Um, um, at an evangelistic rally, the guy, the speaker said, look, the issue isn't were you sincere five years ago? The issue is what are you trusting in now? What are you believing in now? That's, that's the way I think James shows it. So James says, look, you claim to be a Christian. Show me your faith by what you do, not what you did. Show me your faith by what you do. Um, so the first statement I'd say is I don't know if it's crucial that we know precisely when we became Christians. What's crucial is I know I am a Christian. I know I'm a Christian, not because of something I did 10 years ago, because of the faith I have in my heart now and the effect that has on my life now. Yes, Scott. So I have heard the argument that they were a Christian before they were even born. That, go to, go to Ephesians 2, that won't fly. Yeah. 
Ephesians, the same that just in chapter one lavished out all this talk about election and predestination. In, um, in chapter two, Paul makes a very important statement, speaking of our former condition. Um, here we go. Let's just start in verse one. And you were dead. So what were we like before we became Christians, before we were justified, before we were saved? We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and look at this, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. God had not forgiven you until you came to faith. His wrath abided on you prior to your justification. So you didn't come into this... Oh, no, they were predestined, but they weren't saved. I mean, it, most of us speak of saved as when were you forgiven? When did God stop being your enemy? When were you no longer in danger of hell? Wrath actively hangs above all of us until we believe, until we're justified. And Paul is emphatic that justification is a result of faith. So until we exercise faith, he doesn't forgive. Um, and so... In some senses, I mean, I guess I should pause. In some senses, the Bible can zoom in and talk about our salvation and just mean justification, right? Paul in Romans is pretty narrow. But the Bible can also speak of our salvation as like this whole package plan that God has, which is what Paul means in Romans 13 when he says, for the day of our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So there's a sense, biblically, that you can speak of, I have been saved. There's a sense, biblically, I can speak of, I am being saved. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And there's a sense in which I, I will be saved, because really, it's not until the Lord brings me to glory that I'm really finished being saved. Um, and so depending on what you're talking about biblically, you can meaningfully speak of all three of those. We speak theologically, we're just about out, we speak of justification, which is a non-repeated moment in time, it's done to us. God declares us innocent. He declares us righteous in response to our faith. It is, it's, it's, it's an instant in time. You go from one kingdom to another. You go from death to life. You go from darkness to light. You go from wrath to adoption of sons. Then there is progressive sanctification where we become more like Jesus as he washes us with his word more. That has its ups and downs. That takes a lot of time. It's, it's a coordinate effort. We're doing it, but God's doing it. We don't justify ourselves. We do participate in our sanctification. I must work out my salvation of fear and trembling because it's God who's at work within me. See the synergy there? And then glorification, again, will be an instant in time where we're entirely passive. Christ will transform our bodies. Christ will bring us to God. We don't participate in that. We don't help out. It's done to us. So all three of those you can speak of as salvation. Although mostly Christians talk about the first, justification, as are you saved? May mean usually are you forgiven? Are you reconciled with God? That's usually what people mean normally. So time's up. We'll pick up on page two next week. Um, I've been going over late lately, so I will try not to anymore. And Adam or Zeb, if you could t turn this off and trim this, that would be fantastic. <laughs>